You're listening to Ingenuism's Silicon Valley Examined, where we delve into how the tech industry is helping create progress at the speed of thought. I'm Dom Watkins. With me, as always, is Robert Hendershot. All right, Robert, good to talk to you this week. So there's a number of different stories that I want to discuss, and they all have something to do with the issue of connection, which is a theme that we come back to a lot. And the first one I want to raise is the issue of, you know, we're focused and try to highlight the value that the internet brings in connecting the whole globe and making it easier than ever for people to interact and collaborate and share ideas and insights. But one issue that we talked about last week was that there's still a value of physical connection and that we see this, for instance, in the way in which high-skilled immigration is still showing indeed it's rising faster than ever as people are coming to places like the united states and in particular places like silicon valley but one story that we that i recently came upon is by an author named matt clancy who talks about the way in which academia is pioneering successful innovation by distributed teams and he looks at a lot of data about collaboration finds that again and again a lot of the most influential work being done in academia is being done by teams that are widely dispersed. And one of the reasons that he thinks that is, is not that there isn't a value in physical connection, but that there is a value in being able to connect with people who have very specialized knowledge that might not be in your physical vicinity. And that, that the benefits of that might overwhelm the shortcomings of not being in the same room. And so I'm curious if you had any thoughts on that phenomenon of um, where are we in terms of being able to replace the value of in-person connection and under what circumstances is it worth the loss that you uh, encounter from not being in the same room or the same vicinity from people who with whom you can cross-pollinate ideas. Well, that's a topic that I'm, I could pontificate on forever, given that I've been at a university in Silicon Valley for 28 years. And I think that academia is a unique test case. I mean, there may be others, but it's because academia exists in part to deliver knowledge to students, it is inherently fragmented and dispersed. You don't get this sort of gravitational pull that Silicon Valley has for tech entrepreneurs where people can come and there are costs to people coming. I mean, there are explicit costs because uh, real estate is extremely expensive and the Bay Area has, has relatively bad traffic. And but there are also implicit costs. I mean, people uproot their lives. They leave their friends. They leave their families. They leave their communities to come to Silicon Valley. And I think that in a world where that was possible, uh, academia, academia would look a lot the same way, that, that academics would end up conglomerating into a few areas, maybe in you know Palo Alto and in Cambridge. And uh, th these would look a lot more like tech hubs. Uh, 
But at least as long as you have in-person teaching, that's not a practical solution. So academics have been forced to deal with the how do I collaborate with my colleagues when my colleagues are hundreds, thousands of miles away. And so I think there's a lot to be learned from, from academics. Um, not so much that their trade-offs extend or, or can be, um, you can extrapolate from what academia is doing to what other people should be doing, but looking more at what are the best practices and, and what are the potential outcomes. You know, how much of a cost is it to stay thousands of miles apart? You know, ideally you'd be in the same room, uh, but that's just not going to happen as long as you have two distinct universities. Uh, so academics have been collaborating for a long time together from long distances. And it's gotten much, much more effective with the internet, you know, even pre the web. Uh, just having email and FTP was a huge deal. Instead of having to mail manuscripts around, you could actually share them in, in real time, although it would be transferring them electronically and then printing them out. Uh, but that those reductions in the frictions and the fact that it has increased the uh, collaboration among academics that are in distinct locations. That's, I think, a really positive sign for what's possible in the rest of the world because while you can get a lot of people coming to Silicon Valley, you can't put 8 billion people in Silicon Valley. So there are always going to be uh, a combination of people collaborating in the same room, people collaborating in the same region where they get together uh, periodically, and then people collaborating truly remotely where all they have is the virtual presence. So all I see is you as a little box in Zoom and hear your voice. But it turns out that we can do 90 or 95 percent of what we're trying to do uh, relative to if we were actually in the same room. Well, I want to stick with that point, which is, do you have a good sense of, you know, what is it that we lose by not being in the same room? Because obviously there's, I think the most obvious kind of loss is the kind of chance encounters that one experiences if you're not in an office building, but is there something more than that? So what, is there a a loss in the kind of effectiveness of connection from being in Zoom um, versus the same exact meeting taking place in person? Because intuitively, I think that there is, but I have trouble putting words to it or really zeroing in on what it is. One, one I don't know how this fits, but one study that was done, which we'll see if it replicates, um, found that if th that online interactions were more effective if people shut off the video, if shut, they shut off the camera. So I, th I think there's still we're still learning a lot about the nature of online communication and how it differs from in-person, but what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think that there's a lot of value to being in the same room if you're trying to have a deep connection. Uh, whether it's intellectual or emotional, you get more than just the cues that come from conversation. 
But there's also a lot of value to having an interaction where you have time to to think about it and consider and maybe go off and read something in the middle of the interaction. And that's not something that you you'll typically do when people are meeting in person. And that really is, is distinct from whether you're together or not, but whether you're uh, communicating and interacting synchronously or not. And when you're interacting synchronously, you have, it works really well when you have a plan, like we're going to get together, we're going to go through these pages, we're going to have this sort of intention and this sort of outcome. And it usually is, is um, really easy to follow that, that script and to get to that outcome. And then you may actually get diverted, but the same thing can happen on Zoom. It's just much harder to then immediately jump into another topic. So the way that that I see video as a form of connection for remote work is a little bit different than uh, which is really your question, which is a little bit different than I think how it's, it's usually thought about. Um, there's definitely a something biological about being in, in someone's physical presence, and there's definitely something about seeing a face rather than just listening to a voice. So right now, you have your camera on, and I don't, which was not actually intentional. Uh, but it, it means for a different relationship. You know, I'm a voice coming out of the, the ether, and I can actually see you. But you're in a little box, and uh, I, I can't really pick up on anything other than your big motions. So the benefit of video in where we are now, in Zoom, for example, uh, is relatively modest. Um, there's there's been pushes to add video to remote communication for a long, long time. I mean, AT and T introduced the video phone had decades ago, in the middle of the last century, and thought it would be a huge hit, and nobody wanted it. And I think the reason is that people really value you mobility. If you look at when people rapidly embrace a technology, it's because it gives them additional mobility. And it can be pretty crappy otherwise. If, if you're old enough to remember early cell phones, they were, they were pretty terrible. But people loved them because they gave them mobility. And the same thing was true for cordless phones. You, know, you, you could barely go farther than your house, but it was way better than being attached to a cable on the wall with a traditional phone. And so people put up with a lot of downside of lousy voice quality and short battery life and uh, drop calls and all of these things because they got mobility. And the video phone, the original AT&T video phone, was the opposite of mobility because instead of being able to walk around, at least the distance that your, your phone cord would let you, you had to sit absolutely still in front of the camera in order to use the video feature. And, and being immobile like that is just a huge cost to people. And what we have now, as we're, we're talking on Zoom, is we're stuck at a desk. 
So uh, the the pandemic has really accelerated the adoption of video communication, but it hasn't solved the core problem that we are stuck at our desks while we are talking. If we were in a room together, we could get up and we could go get coffee. We could walk around the room. We could go to a whiteboard. And Zoom is slowly starting to mimic some of those mobility aspects. But it isn't there yet. And until it is, I think we're, we're going to see a big pendulum swing back to more in person and more turn off your camera so I can you know, walk around and, and you know, be doing other things. And the last thing I'd add to that is I think it was fortuitous that, that the pandemic and, and Zoom really took off. Uh, I, not just fortuitous, but it, it was not a coincidence that that happened when uh, video uh, connection also had migrated to smartphones. The fact that you can zoom on your phone makes Zoom a much more attractive platform than if you always had to be sitting at your desk in order to use Zoom. Yeah, the mobility part I hadn't thought of, but I definitely agree. And indeed, there's always the, the you know the live question whenever you're scheduling a meeting is often, all right, do I do I need to have access? you know, to Zoom or am I going to be off doing things? Because though, you know, Zoom on my phone is mobile, I'm not necessarily going to rely on it if I'm like walking outside or something like that, depending on how my, you know, cell phone coverage is. But I think the other thing is just, you mentioned kind of, it's a little picture in a box. Uh, I Have you played with virtual reality at all? Uh, just a little bit. Um you know, I don't uh, have motion sickness for physical motion, but I do sometimes get a little motion sickness from virtual reality, which makes it, and, and I find it to be extraordinarily uncomfortable and bothersome because I never have the experience in the real world. So I'm not a prime candidate for virtual reality, at least in its current form. Yeah, I've never used it in part. It just doesn't appeal to me, though I am a little bit curious. On the other hand, what, I, what I'm really looking forward to, and I'm sure there's people working on it, I mean, I basically just want a technology where, you know, if we Zoom call, you're sitting in the chair next to me, like not in corporeal form, but by, you know, all intents and purposes, I'm acting or interacting with somebody who seems three-dimensional. And it seems we have certain amount of technology that is capable of things like that. But I think that's it'll be interesting to see if something like that can enhance the the value of um, interaction at a distance even more. Well, in Silicon Valley, there's a lot of work going on on uh, virtual reality, and there's a huge built-in base uh, demand in gaming. Uh, and you're starting to see more virtual reality being created to have a non-traditional video game a social experience. So there are companies that are creating rooms that you and your family can go and interact and play games uh, with it being a you know of a 3D rendered uh, interaction where you both show up on the screen. Um, I th think that a lot of people are expecting that to be the office of the future, you know, the remote work of the future. Uh, I personally don't, uh, and it gets back to the same issue of mobility. Uh, when you are using virtual reality in today's technology, you're basically strapping a small computer onto your face, and you can move around in the virtual world, 
but you are stuck uh, since you can't see anything. Uh, even if you don't have any cords, you are stuck pretty much exactly where you are. Uh, but I think that, that the, the more interesting and in long term we'll have a lot more legs version of that is what we call augmented reality, where, yes, in fact, I am sitting next to you virtually um, and you can see me, but you can also see the rest of your room. You can walk around the room. You don't have to wear goggles. Um, you know, Google's Glass was trying to do something like this, uh, where you have both the world you're in, in reality, and the, the things that you want to bring into that world. Uh, that's an office that uh, you could imagine people using even when they're in the same building instead of you know, walking down the hall, getting in the elevator, and going upstairs to talk to a colleague, just you know, flipping the glass and having them pop up as sort of a, a smoky phantom where you can see them, you can you can actually maybe even get visual cues off of the interaction, uh, but you're not separated out from the rest of your world uh, unless you're looking for that sort of isolation, like in a video game. Uh, that turns out uh, to be a huge downside for people because it, it takes away their mobility. So I was very interested to read this piece from the New York Times, which we read a lot, or at least I did. I assume other people encountered this too during the pandemic of people fleeing Silicon Valley. And there were just a plethora of articles that like, it's dead, nobody's ever coming back. And there were all sorts of reasons uh, including the expense of the area, including certain criticisms of the culture of Silicon Valley. But what was interesting in this piece was that there seems to be some evidence that at least some of the people who left are coming back. And the starting anecdote that the newspaper gives, um, it gives one particular account from a uh, founder and chief executive of a cloud computing company and he basically left saying, you know, uh, San Francisco is a hellhole. And he then decides, you know what, I'm ready to return. And according to the article, it says he missed the serendipity of city life, meeting new people, running into acquaintances in the street and getting drinks with colleagues. Quote, the city is full of that opportunities that you may never have expected would come your way, Mr. Osuri said. He moved back to San Francisco in April. And I don't think from our perspective that that reaction is surprising, though it is fascinating to me how much it's at the forefront of people's minds, even though, you know, they haven't presumably uh, based their decision making on our work, that they're thinking in terms of connection, like the extreme value of even non-obvious kinds of interactions and, and connectivity. Yeah, I think that the death of the city um, that people were talking about a year ago uh, was always overblown in the absence of a an alternative. Um, if there were true ways to have that sort of deep and serendipitous connecting, um, and, and it's not saying that it's impossible. I mean, this, you can think of something like you know, the next three versions of Clubhouse evolving into something where uh, you don't have to be physically present in order to get the kind of connection that that you might get randomly on, 
in the financial district in San Francisco or in Midtown Manhattan or at a conference, you know, the places people go because they run into interesting people. Uh, you could do that virtually, um, but we're, we're just not there yet. There is no platform that provides even a rudimentary mimic of what city life has to offer. Um, the only things that you know seemed plausible were, were the you know, critical mass elements. Uh, that if you had enough people leave San Francisco, so when you were the first one to come back, those things were no longer there. Along with you know, none of the restaurants being open or any of the interesting opportunities. Or if you're thinking about moving back to Manhattan, but there's no Broadway and all the restaurants are closed and there there's no one out, you know, running around providing that energy that that New York has always had, uh, then you could imagine it being a chicken and egg problem. Uh, but as quickly as the pandemic has turned around and as attractive as uh, these areas are, and you know, the, one of the ways you, you get people back is it stops being as expensive, it stops being as crowded. And so if you're suddenly, you know, you're the suburb you move to or the smaller city you move to is getting more expensive and it's getting more crowded and it, it doesn't have the uh, features that you really loved about where you were originally, whether it was San Francisco or Seattle or New York, then you're much more apt to to move back than if everything was static. So the world adjusts. Uh, there's always going to be a balance where uh, the people who value what San Francisco and the Bay Area have the most, uh, who value that the most, uh, are pulled here, and people who just don't put that much value on it, they're never going to come back. Yeah, though I think the the flip side of it is also important, which you mentioned in passing, which is, to put it in my words, which is that be, creates a opportunity of a problem to solve, which is, all right, how do we give people the benefits of living in a city without them having to live in a city? right? There's a lot of people who are switching to remote work. And certainly I do remote work and I live in a remote place, but there's still a lot of those benefits I'd love to extract. And so to view that not as, well, that's just part of the trade-off of doing living remotely and doing remote work, but as, well, that's ridiculous. Let's figure out how to make it possible for a person who wants to live remotely still to gain as many of those benefits as possible. I think that, like, that's to, I, I, I'm really th excited to think about one of the outcomes of the pandemic and the shift to remote work is that there's going to be a lot of people scrambling and are scrambling to figure out ways to make that more and more commensurable with the way that we all used to work. Yeah, and it's going to totally sneak up on us because that's just how these things go. Uh, you have a an opportunity to provide something that people really value, but you're not able to do it well. So, uh, you know, the, the cell phone would be a great example, you, you know, giving people mobility, but the original cell phones are the size of a watermelon and weigh just as much and have a 30 second battery life and no network coverage. And, and so it's just sort of a, a novelty or a toy. Uh, and then there are a few people like, uh, in the case of the cell phone, salespeople who really, really valued being connected while they were on the road. You know, it could mean the difference between hundreds of thousands of dollars of commissions. Uh, so you have some people that, that will use this, but most people, it, it's just not interesting because the, the, the flaws are just too large, even with the large benefits. 
Uh, but when we're talking about technology, uh, those flaws tend to go away really, really quickly. And this is this is what Clay Christensen uh, first coined the term as a disruptive technology. This is what it looks like. So out there right now, there are people building um, virtual rooms where you can hold business meetings or you can hold social events. And right now, they're pretty crappy. And they're going to be crappy until they're just good enough that people start to migrate en masse. And then once people start to migrate, they start to improve rapidly, not because people weren't trying to improve them before, but because it takes volume to really make these things valuable. You know, it's much more valuable for everyone to have a cell phone than if you're one of a few that have a cell phone. I mean, sure, you can call everyone on their landline, but you don't have the same benefits of uh, messaging or playing uh, mobile games or with other people, all the things that we take for granted because everyone has a cell phone. So it will be, you know, we'll be talking about this in, I don't know if it'll be in three years or in 15 years, but there'll be the, a day when we'll look around and we'll go, oh my God, it happened. You know, we now can run into people, uh, we can get, you know, it's even better than it was in back in the day when it was serendipitous because we can go places where we have that same set of people all congr uh, congregating uh, because that's that's the downside of a small city is you don't have that many people so you don't have that many people that share your interests or are working on things that that you find interesting or re relevant to you a big city has more but it's harder to find them because it's a big city but the internet allows you to have access to billions of people, but very quickly sift through and find the ones that you want in the same way that you know Amazon has millions of books, but makes it easy for you to find the books that you like and, and not have to read about teenage werewolf romances. Uh, the internet can also, technology can also make it easy for you to find the people that you are most interested in running into. And I don't mean a planned encounter because that's, that's a very different phenomenon. But where you are interested in people of a certain age who are interested in certain topics, and then you just start you know, speed dating, basically, and finding out who you really want to spend more time with. Yeah, I think one, one mistake that you can make thinking about this is, in effect, how do we recreate what exists in the real world. I mean, you mentioned messaging, and one of the really interesting things about cell phones was that texting, which seems a more primitive form of communication, actually became more and more the dominant form of communication. And so it'll be interesting to, to see what evolves and are there you know, new kind of forms of communication that are preferable, or at least in some contexts preferable, that like we haven't even anticipated yet that aren't just an attempt to like grope towards sitting in a room with somebody. Yeah, I think that uh, that the distinction between synchronous and asynchronous communication is really important. Uh, what people found with texting, what I find with texting, and what everyone I know finds with texting is it has the advantage of having the opportunity to respond as um, as is appropriate, whether it's quickly be or it's delayed because you have other things going on or because you want to go out and get some new information. 
And in a phone world, all we were used to was leaving voicemails, and you'd have to call someone back, and you couldn't actually advance the conversation. I guess you could leave long voicemails that were essentially audio texts, but it was it was very cumbersome to have an asynchronous interaction. And now what we have is this blend of ways to connect that are all uh, entangled and, and not mutually exclusive. So when we work together, we spend time on Zoom, and that's planned, and we're doing a specific thing. But we're also posting stuff uh, on Teams. We're uh, commenting on it. We're we're able to get the best of both worlds. And that's what, if, if you're, you know, in, in Silicon Valley, what you have is in reality the best of all worlds. Uh, but that doesn't mean that you couldn't have an even better, something that we don't imagine, just like you wouldn't have imagined in a phone-based world, you wouldn't have imagined texting being such a big deal. Uh, that doesn't mean that, that what we have today is the optimal, is the best we could do. And in fact, I think that we'll really see remote interactions take off when people have worked out a package of features that is actually better than what you can get in the real world in terms of interacting with people in all different dimensions, including you know running into them spontaneously. One phenomenon that is that we've kind of touched upon is sort of the state of remote work and uh, there's kind of, there's in, at least at some companies some tensions in Silicon Valley now about people who have in effect said I like remote work some of the data shows that they're even more productive but companies like Facebook are calling them back and there's a, an Apple and often there's kind of a tension saying, well, we don't want to come back, or at least we don't want to come back now. And it's hard to disentangle genuine concern about the pandemic from people who just, you know, they got a taste of remote work and really like it. Um, you said to me a few days ago that you, you thought there was an interesting contrast between how Silicon Valley's handled remote work and um, New York banking world. What are your thoughts there? Well, I think that... Uh... Silicon Valley is grappling with a combination of how do we keep the people we want to keep and how do we make them the most productive. Um, and different companies are taking different tacks, and I think that's great because we'll learn pretty quickly which ones seem to work the best. Uh, but in New York, the general push is to get people back into the office, uh, maybe because you know, banking is viewed and, and legitimately, I think, viewed as very much a relationship business. And we don't have the technology that allows you to recreate those relationships in a, a, a virtual-only setting. I'm surprised, though, at how many uh, of the big banks are looking at 100% back in the office. It just seems like the lesson that we've learned over the last 15 months is that uh, 100% of the office is not necessary or ideal. Uh, and it may be that the moving parts are such that there's nothing you can cut out without it impacting other groups in the organization and you know propagating. Uh, you could imagine you know, a senior partner at an investment bank needs to be back in the office so that they can train people who are coming up and then they need to be on the road so that they can bring in new business. Uh, 
you know, bringing in new business is is directly contributes to revenue today. Training people contributes to the benefit, you know, of of pe- those people and the organization tomorrow or or down the road. And so there'd be a natural uh, a natural tension there. You know, I I might want to go into the office when I'm getting the benefits of connection, but what about me going into the office when other people are getting the benefits of my being there? And so, you know, all companies are going to have to, to grapple with this. And if, um, if you really think that connection at all levels in today's world is only possible being there, then you have to mandate people come in because otherwise they're going to, they're going to, it's, it's basically a public good and they're going to go in to the office far less than would be best for the organization. You know, I'm not taking that position. I'm not sure that that's true, but I can definitely see why companies would say you need to come back because they're afraid if they don't, then nobody's going to come back because at the individual level, that's the best solution. But at the the organizational level, it's not. One other phenomenon that's come out of all of this is that because of the possibilities of remote work, um, there's been kind of dispersal of tech talent throughout the country. And Steve Case, who founded AOL, he thinks and sees, thinks we're already seeing signs of that this has a really interesting potential now to push tech into solving problems where it might not have even known about the problem a while back. So I think where's the example he gives? Um, he talks about... Uh, let's see. Well, I lost the example. Um, but if you think, you know, there's kind of local problems that are going to be relevant to a place like rural Michigan, where I live, you know, things to do with farming that would have be really useful to, uh, have solutions that involved kind of the top software talent in the world and that the kind of physical dispersion of people is going to, you in effect will get them happening upon people talking about these problems they wouldn't have heard of at a Silicon Valley cocktail party or whatever kind of parties they have in Silicon Valley. And so that we're going to see a lot of new interesting solutions, which um, that seems a little speculative, but to me sounds really cool because I do think we're we're at a place, you know, P- Peter Thiel and others have long talked about, well, we've seen a lot of progress in the world of bits, but not in the world of atoms. And I think over the last 10 years, a lot of what we're seeing is now the proliferation of, okay, we went from computers are getting really good and, so, and, and sharing of information is really good through things like social media now to much more the line between bits and atoms is becoming increasingly blurred, whether it's, you know, how do you classify um, the vaccines, for instance? Well, on the one hand, they, you know, were solved by people in labs, but on the other hand, there was a lot of interaction across the world and a lot of computers burning through a lot of information uh, to something like Uber. I mean, that's, on the one hand, it seems like a taxi company, but on the other hand, it's really something that's enabled by apps. And so this seems to fall under that category, which is the continued use of uh, the world of bits to solve problems in the world of atoms. 
Yeah, I saw that article, and I, th I thought it was really interesting uh, because it aligns with um, what Mark Andreessen talks about with software of it being a lever on the real world, that the real benefit isn't in just the virtual world, but where you can then impact what happens in reality. And you can think about the... Uh, the entrepreneurial energy, the creativity, the in ingenuity of of uh, innovators as being that same kind of lever. Uh, you can. It, there's definitely a reason people come to Silicon Valley and benefits to that sort of agglomeration. Uh, but it does create a. I'll call it a brain drain. That's not really what I mean, though, um, because I'm not talking about just you know smart people or creative people. Talking about people who have a particular mindset about uh, applying their talents to solve problems. So maybe call it an entrepreneurial drain. And it's the same way that the U.S. Um, sucks talent in from all over the world. Silicon Valley sucks talent in from all over the U.S. and all over the world. And that provides a lot of benefits, but it also creates, you know, the, the 99th social media company. There's a certain group think that comes out of that because people are aware of particular types of problems and running into people who are working on particular types of problems. So what you're talking about of, of reversing the, the brain drain could have a really interesting benefit because if you are connected to a different way of thinking or a different set of, of issues in a much deeper way. You know, you're not reading about them. You may not even be aware of them, but even if you were aware of them, you wouldn't be interacting with the the people that would you'd need to partner with in order to really address those problems. Uh, that That creates a different type of entrepreneurial venture, but one that is probably being under-provided in 2020 uh, versus you know this, all the social networking sites that that might be being overprovided, so I think it's a really cool idea uh, because entrepreneurial energy is a lever by which you change the world, and to spread that out, you're going to get different kind of changes in different kind of places. Um, so those that's the main stuff I wanted to cover, but I don't I, I would wanted to at least raise. We talked about Branson going into space last time yesterday we had jeff bezos go into space uh on his rocket which was at least visually uh a, a little cooler to watch and we talked about the kind of uh, technological benefits that flow out of trying to create a space industry that's actually economic um but to me i was just and I, i'm going to write about this in our newsletter for tomorrow the, the I, I had a real kind of striking moment of emotion where I realized, you know, like thousands of years in the future, like presumably we're out there doing really interesting stuff into space. And like we're seeing, you know, one stage of the one important stage of the beginning of that. And people then probably won't even remember or know that this is how it got started but it's if we do really make a push into space it'll be because we found a way to do it economically and not as a drain on everything we're doing and that we're seeing the people who are working on solving that problem as we speak i found it, it made it a really powerful moment 
yeah, it is is super cool uh, in the the you know young boy wanting to go into space sense, but it's even more that you're seeing a and this is part of why uh, ingenuism is so important is you're seeing a increasing recognition of the spillover benefits from each of these particular events. And I'm still seeing articles about how it's it's incredibly selfish that uh, these people are spending money to go to space and they could be solving problems here on Earth. And those type that position is an extraordinarily costly attitude to take. Uh, because first of all, it assumes that you know the future, that in fact, the best way to be spending money is to address these particular problems. Uh, the future is unknowable, and it, it we're really, really bad at predicting it. So the best thing is to be trying a bunch of things. So yeah, if, if there were 99 billionaires all trying to go into space, I, I would be open to having the conversation of whether that was just too much. But when you have three that are spending their own money trying to go into space, I'm, I'm, I think that's probably too few. Uh, and it certainly is a much better situation than zero, where whatever benefits come out of it would never be even known. Uh, but even more than, than that, the spillover benefits is, is just the attitude that, that we can't do any better than to try and solve the problems that we can recognize in the moment. And that's not to, that's not to diminish the problems in the world today. There are definitely challenges in the world. There are definitely issues. There are things that need to be addressed. There's no doubt about that. But if that's all we're ever focused on, then we're basically always looking in the past. We're never looking ahead. We're never trying to, to make the world actually a better place. We're just trying to make it a little bit less worse. And if you imagine, you know, people having that attitude 200 years ago, and just what a crappy world we would live in today, because you know the answers to how do we how do we uh, deal with smallpox or polio were not in the rearview mirror. That you had to come up with something new. You had to come up with a new way of thinking and come up with in, in some kind of insight and then innovation in order to absolutely change the world. And you don't get that if you don't let people push the envelope or if you, you discourage people from pushing the envelope, you get less of it. But I, I get really excited when I see you know, people who are uh, uh, writing normally about how billionaires should be taxed more. And that's a, you know, there are billionaires who think they should be taxed more. It's not the position, but it's just so old and trite but that then they're writing about how this is really great because it could be it could be that something that we never expected comes out of this effort uh, and that's what I think will change the world. Uh, certainly having a bunch of uh, low altitude satellites offering free wireless high speed be wireless broadband to 9 billion people, that would be great, but that, that's what we can already imagine. It's the stuff that we can't imagine. But that, you know, 100 years from now, as you were saying, that when people are looking back, it just seems so obvious to them that of course they went into space because they knew that once we got into space, we'd be able to do that. We just don't know what that is yet. 
Yeah, and I mean, the criticisms are really disingenuous because it's not that they actually want Jeff Bezos to go and solve other problems. I mean, if you look at the criticism Bill Gates gets for trying to solve, you know, the kinds of problems that are more, you know, traditional, like problems faced by the world's poorest, and there's a lot of criticism for it. And indeed, he's become vilified uh, as the person who's bugging all of our vaccines. So it's much more, we don't want billionaires to have money. We want to take all their money and we'll use it to solve the problems that we think are important in the way that we think is important. And I think the the part of what I take away from what you said, which I agree with, is um, it's when people are trying to solve problems that they think are interesting, important, they end up often solving problems that we can't even imagine and creating advances that we can't even imagine and looking back then you say oh i'm really glad that happened that was really important even though looking forward it wasn't obvious at all that this would be something that would pay off right and that's why in ingenuism and in silicon valley the most important thing is that people have the freedom to work on interesting problems and do interesting things and a lot of times they seem crazy early on Oh, and then later, they don't seem so crazy. Thanks, Robert. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We will be back next week. In the meantime, be sure to go to ingenuism.com and sign up for our Substack newsletter. Talk then.